If you were to ask people you know to describe the Bible, what do you think they'd say? Probably some would say it's a story, others a fable. You'll also hear that it's a collection of moral teachings, or maybe just a piece of literature. Sometimes you hear it spoken of as the bestseller of all time. Well, the Bible is a story, but the important thing is whose story it is. Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're continuing in our series, The Message of Salvation, picking up on the theme of salvation that Dr. Ryken has been developing. We've looked at why we need to be saved, what we're saved from, and what we are saved to. And now we'll look at how God delivers us. Phil, you talk today specifically about the days when God's people were held in Egypt as a symbol for our bondage to sin. Well, I am going to talk about that, Mark, and I think it's helpful to have that visual image. You know, for a believer in Christ, Egypt is a symbol of where we used to live. While we were there, we were in bondage to sin very much the way that the Israelites were in bondage to Pharaoh. And the Exodus is a, a symbol for us of deliverance. Just as God's people were delivered out of their slavery in Egypt, we too have been delivered out of our slavery to sin through Jesus Christ. As we've gone through the studies thus far, we've seen that salvation is something that only God can do. Yeah, that's, that's right, Mark. And salvation is something that only God can do. And today, as we look at Exodus, we'll see that salvation is something that God really has accomplished in human history. He rescued his people. He brought them out of bondage. And that's something he continues to do for us today. You know, Israelites never could have saved themselves. And that's true for us. We need God to save us from the Egypt of our sin. It is God's rescuing work for the Israelites and for us. Thank you. Let's continue our series now by turning to Exodus 15 and listen to God's Word for us today. Perhaps you have seen one of the billboards, perhaps on a bus, or perhaps another billboard around the city at this time, which makes the following statement. Life has no master plan. Life has no master plan. If you were here last week, you know that we took issue with that statement. We said that God has a sovereign plan for the final destiny of every human being so that salvation begins with his electing grace. This week we come to one of the most remarkable examples of divine election, and that is God's decision to save Israel out of Egypt. At the time of their deliverance, the Israelites were a rather nondescript Palestinian people. They were the descendants of shepherds and nomads, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, men who had accomplished nothing that would commend them to the outside world. They had won no great battles. They had built no large cities. They had produced no beautiful art. No, at the time, they were simply common laborers slaving away in the desert sun. Yet the people of Israel had one thing going for them, and that is that they were chosen by God. God had elected to love them and to save them for his glory, and his reason for doing so had nothing to do with the Israelites themselves. 
When the prophet Moses later reflected on Israel's deliverance, this is Deuteronomy chapter 7, he reminded them, the Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples. For you were the fewest of all peoples, but it was because the Lord loved you that he brought you out with a mighty hand from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. You see, God did not love the Israelites because they were lovable, but because he was loving. He saved them for no other reason than because he chose to save them. Now, the Israelites had first gone down to Egypt during the days of Joseph. There had been a famine in the land, and so the sons of Israel traveled to Egypt to buy bread. There they settled to raise their families, and over the next several hundred years, the children of Israel were fruitful, and they multiplied greatly, and they became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. Eventually, there were so many Israelites that they posed a threat to Pharaoh. He feared what such a large immigrant population might do in the case of political unrest. And so his initial strategy for controlling the Israelites was to turn them into slaves. Using whips and chains, he forced them to build great tombs and cities in the desert. Yet still they multiplied. They grew so numerous that the scripture says the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and they made their lives bitter with hard labor. And yet the longer they labored, the stronger they became. When Pharaoh realized that slavery was failing to control the minority population, he turned to infanticide, and he gave this order that every boy that is born you must throw into the Nile. And so Egypt was a terrible place to live in those days, a land of slavery and captivity, a land of torture and murder. So God called Moses to lead the people out of Egypt, only Pharaoh refused to let them leave. Time and again, Moses went to Pharaoh and he said, let my people go. And Pharaoh said, no. And so God visited the Egyptians with dreadful plagues, with blood and frogs and flies and disease and darkness and finally death. Yet the worse things got, the more hard-hearted Pharaoh became and He refused to let God's people go. As we reflect on these things, it is little wonder that the Bible calls Egypt the house of bondage. For this day, Pharaoh's Egypt stands for everything that is hateful to God and hurtful to God's people. And in the biblical message of salvation, which we are studying on these Sunday evenings, Egypt also serves as a symbol for the bondage of sinful humanity. We are bound by sin. For the sinful mind is hostile to God, and those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. And since we are sinners, we are bound also by Satan, for the whole world is under the control of the evil one. And finally, we are bound to die. For the Bible teaches that sin reigns over humanity through death. And if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, tonight you can reflect on the Egypt in which you used to live in the house of bondage. 
If you have not yet come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you ought to consider what bondage you might be in through sin, through Satan, and through, finally, death. And what people need when they find themselves in bondage is, of course, deliverance. And as it turns out, deliverance is the essential meaning of the biblical concept of salvation. Basic Hebrew words for salvation, which appear hundreds and hundreds of times in the Old Testament, mean to save or to rescue or to deliver. So in the Bible, salvation and deliverance are virtually synonymous. The most daring deliverance of all was the exodus from Egypt. It was the saving event of the Old Testament, the paradigm of salvation. Throughout the rest of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Exodus is considered the supreme example of God's saving grace. God's people always remembered their God as the one who brought them out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. It is not surprising that the Exodus should become synonymous with salvation, for it was a most remarkable rescue. What happened was this. We find it recorded in Exodus chapter 14 and then sung about in Exodus 15. Pharaoh had finally decided to let God's people go, and so the Israelites, thousands upon thousands of them, gathered up all of their belongings and marched out of Egypt. God had Moses lead them down the desert road that led straight towards the Red Sea where they camped on the edge of the desert. No sooner had the Israelites departed than Pharaoh decided that he had made a major political mistake. What have we done? Said his advisors. Exodus 14, verse 5, we have let the Israelites go and have lost their services. So Pharaoh readied his troops for battle and he climbed into his chariot and he chased the Israelites across the desert and overtook them at their camp by the sea. Now, from the standpoint of military tactics, the Israelites were in an extremely vulnerable position. On one side, they were hemmed in by the sea. On the other, they could hear the rumble of chariots and the tramping of soldiers on the march. Terrified by what they both saw and heard, they were certain that they were about to meet a fate even worse than slavery. In their desperation, they cried out to God, and they said, it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die here in the desert. You see, the Israelites did not trust God's power to save. And yet, humanly in speaking, we can understand this because they were making an accurate assessment of their situation. They were in grave danger. The Egyptians boasted the world's strongest army. They were determined to destroy as many Israelites as necessary and to take all the rest of them back to the house of bondage. There they were, caught between the army and the sea, facing slavery on the one side and certain death on the other, with nothing that they could do to save themselves. Only God could deliver them. And hence, in their peril, we find an apt illustration of the human predicament. For we ourselves are trapped between sin and death. And since we are unable to escape by ourselves, we need God to come and rescue us. That is, we need God 
to save us. Now, as desperate as the Israelites were, their deliverance was never in any real doubt. And this is because, as we have already noted, God had elected them for salvation. In fact, salvation was the very first thing that God promised Moses when he called him to lead the people out of Egypt. God said, I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. And it's exactly what God did. He saved Israel out of Egypt. The details of this dramatic rescue from impending disaster are so vividly and poetically described for us in Exodus chapter 15. It's called, if you notice in your Bible, the Song of Moses and Miriam. First God parted the waters of the Red Sea. By the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The surging waters stood firm like a wall. The deep waters congealed in the heart of the sea. When the waters had been piled up in this way, God's people walked through right on dry land with the Egyptians in hot pursuit. The enemy boasted, this is Exodus 15, verse 9, I will pursue, I will overtake them, I will divide the spoils, I will gorge myself on them, I will draw my sword, and my hand will destroy them. You can hear Pharaoh's boast. But all his boasting came to nothing. Whereas he attempted to follow the Israelites on their path through the sea, his chariots got bogged down in the mud, and there Pharaoh perished with all his soldiers with him. For the wind changed, and the waters turned, and the entire army was gulped down by the sea. Now, it is important to understand that the events celebrated in Exodus 15 really happened. The Bible contains many great rescue stories, but they are more than stories. They are actually histories, true stories of God's saving work in space and time. Salvation is always a fact and never a fiction. In the case of Israel's exodus from Egypt, salvation was not only a fact, it was a miracle. No merely natural explanation could account for all the details of this amazing rescue. It required the supernatural intervention of Almighty God. And from this saving intervention, we learn at least these three principles about God's saving work. All of them are suggested by chapter 15, verse 2, in the first part of the verse. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. The first principle is the most general, and it is simply this. The Lord is my salvation. The Lord is my salvation. From beginning to end, deliverance is divine. And what Moses emphasizes throughout his recounting of these events is that it was all God's doing. God personally handled all of the arrangements for Israel's salvation. He instructed Moses where to set up the camp. He told him how to hold his staff over the water. He held back the sea with a strong east wind and then finally trapped the Egyptian chariots in the mire and swept them under the waters. As he remembered these things, Moses rather matter-of-factly summarized all of this 
divine activity by saying this. It's at the end of chapter 14. That day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. Later, when it came time to write the lyrics for his song, Moses put the same truth in poetry. You blew with your breath, and the sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. You see, the great truth to be learned from Israel's coming out of Egypt is also the primary message of the Bible, which is that salvation comes from the Lord. In the first part of this series of sermons, we discovered that salvation is something only God can accomplish. Now we are discovering that salvation is something he really has accomplished in human history. You may remember that back in our study of Isaiah chapter 59, we noted that God is a divine warrior who goes out into battle armed with nothing except his own strength. We find the same thing here in the war that he waged against the Egyptians. Starting in verse 3, the Lord is a warrior, the Lord is his name. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. And then down in verse 12, you stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. It's all a way of saying that God saved Israel out of Egypt with his own bare hands. And forever afterward, whenever God's people recounted their deliverance from Egypt, the main thing that they remembered was who did the delivering. As Moses later said, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. In other words, the Lord is our salvation. Not only is the Lord our salvation, but he is also our strength. And this is the second thing. The way God revealed his mighty strength to Israel was by crushing their enemies. Moses did not hesitate to describe Egypt's defeat in graphic terms. He had watched the Egyptians drown with his own eyes, and thus he was able to describe very vividly how God sent them gurgling down to the bottom of the sea. Chapter 15, verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his army, he has hurled into the sea the best of Pharaoh's officers. And you can practically see them as Moses describes them, are drowned in the Red Sea, the deep waters have covered them, and they sank to the depths like a stone. There were no survivors. Later, the Israelites, in fact, watched the bodies of the Egyptians wash up on the shores of the Red Sea. It was an impressive display of God's strength, that's for sure. And yet some may ask whether it was necessary or even right for God to destroy the Egyptians. In human terms, it was a horrific event involving the loss of many men as well as many horses. Yet Moses did more than describe what happened. He praised God for it. He said, I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its rider he is hurled into the sea. The Lord is my strength. To understand why this is so, to see what was so praiseworthy about drowning Pharaoh and all his soldiers, it helps to remember how evil they were. 
We've already noticed it. The Egyptians were a brutal and arrogant and oppressive people in those days who worked the Israelites to death and refused to give God the glory. Therefore, casting the horse and rider into the sea was an act of God's perfect justice. But realize this. The conflict between Israel and Egypt was really a spiritual battle, pitting the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob against the gods and goddesses of the Nile. For when Moses first asked Pharaoh to let his people go, it was for this reason, so that they could go out into the wilderness to worship God. The way that God finally persuaded Pharaoh to give in was by showing that he held power over all of the gods and goddesses of Egypt. You know, most of the plagues that were visited on Egypt defeated very specific Egyptian deities. Turning the water into blood showed God's power over Hapi, who personified the Nile. Sending the frog showed God's power over Hecate, who was often depicted as a frog, and so forth. By the time that God was finished with the Egyptians, he had humbled every last one of their gods and goddesses. And for this spiritual victory, he was to be praised. This is the meaning of verse 11 in chapter 15. Who among the gods is like you, O Lord? Certainly none of the gods of Egypt. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? It's a way of saying that God is incomparable, that his power to save is unique, And by working his wonders to bring Israel out of Egypt, he proved that no one else can match his holy majesty and his awesome glory. A few weeks ago, we mentioned that some of the problems with believing that all the different world religions offer essentially the same salvation. And here we discover, I think, a further problem with trying to mix biblical Christianity with other Religions. The reason it's wrong to worship other gods is because they are not gods at all. The salvation God offers requires the defeat of every false object of worship. And therefore, we will never be saved by embracing other faiths, but only by excluding them. Now, everything we have been saying so far about God's saving strength as implications for our faith in Jesus Christ. We saw last week that Jesus is the location of our salvation, and he's the only one who is able to save us from our sins. It's why the New Testament so often calls him the Savior. In fact, Savior is what his name means. Jesus means the Lord is my salvation. And in so many ways, the salvation that Jesus offers is the same kind of salvation that God's people experienced when they came out of Egypt. In the New Testament, as in the Old Testament, salvation means deliverance. And in its most general sense, salvation in Christ is a rescue. We should expect, therefore, that in order for us to be rescued, it's necessary for Jesus to destroy all of our enemies, just the way that God destroyed the Egyptians in the waters of the Red Sea. Think of the way that Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, praised God for sending Jesus. 
This is what he's saying. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to rescue us from our enemies. Whatever one of our enemies you may care to mention, Jesus is our strength and our salvation. He saves us from our sins. That's why Jesus came in the first place. God said you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This is what Jesus was doing on the cross through his atoning death. He was giving himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age. And in fact, on at least one occasion, the Bible calls his saving death an exodus. We sometimes don't realize this because of the way it's translated in the New International Version, but you might want to turn to it. It's Luke chapter 9. It's the story of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where he appeared to his disciples in all of his glory. Luke chapter 9, starting in verse 28, Jesus had gone up onto the mountain to pray with his disciples, and there you may remember he spoke with Moses and also with Elijah, and see what the scripture says in verse 31. Moses and Elijah appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. The word Luke actually used was not departure, however, the word is exodus. It's a way of saying that the scripture understands the crucifixion of Jesus Christ to be a kind of exodus. The exodus from Egypt was a sign promising the greatest exodus of all, Jesus passing through death's deep waters and landing safe on the far side to save us from sin. As we study the rest of the New Testament, we see that sin is not the only enemy from which we need to be saved. Jesus saves us from all the consequences of sin. Scripture says that we shall be saved from God's wrath through Jesus. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 9. Scripture says, and this is Revelation chapter 20, that Jesus one day will save us from Satan, from the evil one, with all of his powers that he will be cast into an eternal, infernal lake of fire. Jesus is the Savior who saves us from all our enemies, from sin, from wrath, from Satan, and then by virtue of his resurrection, he will deliver us from our last enemy, which is death. The Apostle Paul asked, who will rescue me from this body of death? And immediately he gave the answer, thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. You know, Christians have long considered the resurrection of Jesus to be a kind of exodus, a passing from death into life. It was so beautifully expressed in the hymn that we sang at the beginning of this service, all the way from John of Damascus back in the 8th century. The hymn in the first stanza, and you might want to look at it later this week in your devotions, in the first stanza it praises God for bringing his people out of Egypt, bringing them with unmoistened foot through the Red Sea waters. John of Damascus was writing not so much about Israel and Egypt as about the resurrection The hymn goes on in its triumphant final stanzas to describe an even greater exodus in which Christ hath burst his prison and from three days' sleep of death as a son hath risen. This hymn reminds us of a final truth about God and his 
salvation. That is this, not only is the Lord my salvation and my strength, but he is also my song. He is also my song. In fact, the most obvious feature of Exodus 15 is the one that we have saved for last, and that is that it contains the lyrics for a song. In the first verse, we read that Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. The reason for their singing is obvious. I will sing to the Lord. Why? For he is highly exalted. He has become my salvation. The Israelites sang because they had been saved. And having been delivered from Egypt, it was only natural for them to want to sing God's praises. For salvation is what puts God's song into the believer's heart. It's significant, I think, that the song of Moses and of Miriam is the first song in the Bible. There had always been poetry, of course, ever since Adam took one look at Eve and uttered the world's first love poem. There had always been singing, or at least music. In Genesis chapter 4, we are introduced to Jubal, who was the father of all who play the harp and flute. With the song of Moses and Miriam, we have the very first song recorded in the Bible. You see, the reason for singing was that the Exodus gave them something to sing about. It's striking, if you think about it, that their song gives us probably no new information about Israel's salvation. And from one point of view, what's in Exodus 15 is completely unnecessary in the Bible. You could go right from Exodus chapter 14, verse 31, to Exodus 15, chapter 22, without any disturbance in the line of the story. And yet the story would be incomplete without the song. Remember that God always saves his people for a purpose, We've mentioned it a number of times already in this series of sermons that salvation is for God's glory. And in order for God to receive the glory he deserves, it is necessary for his people to sing hymns to his praise. In fact, I think it is not too much to say that the reason God saved the Israelites out of Egypt was so that they could stand on the shores of the Red Sea and sing this song. Three times in chapter 14, God promised, I will gain glory for myself through Pharaoh and all his army. That promise was fulfilled not just when the Israelites walked through on dry land or when the Egyptians were swallowed by the sea, although all of that was part of it. No, the promise was fulfilled when Moses began to sing. You might put it like this, that the Exodus was always intended to be a musical and never simply a drama. Salvation always calls for a song. Try to imagine Christianity without music. It's unthinkable, really. The reason we are saved is to give glory to God, and what better way to do so than with a song? Johann Sebastian Bach said that the aim and final reason of all music should be none else but the glory of God. And since it has the power to touch the heart, music has a unique capacity to increase God's glory by moving us to praise him with all of our being. 
John Calvin was right when he said that singing has great power and vigor to move and inflame men's hearts to call upon and praise God with a more burning zeal. To this we should only add that every Christian is a member of the choir. The song of salvation is for everyone who has been saved. You know, once Moses was finished singing, all God's people took up the refrain. We didn't read these verses, but I noticed this week that we should have, beginning in verse 20, then Miriam the prophetess, Aaron's sister, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women followed her with tambourines and dancing. And in spontaneous, joyful ecstasy, Miriam began dancing on the seashore. With music and singing, all God's women took up the victory dance. You'll notice their song began with exactly the same words as the song of Moses, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Although it is not recorded in the Bible, in all likelihood the women proceeded to sing the entire song. In any case, it was the same song. For the same salvation, a song for Miriam as well as for Moses, for women as well as for men, a song for all God's people to sing with one voice. And if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, it's also a song for you. You have been saved from sin and from wrath. You've been saved from Satan and death and all the rest of your enemies. And now you really have something to sing about. And so take up the chorus and shake out the tambourine. Put on your dancing shoes and give glory to God. For he is your strength and your song. And he has become your salvation. Our Father, we give you praise that you have called us to praise you in song And we give you praise that you have not only called us to praise you, but you have given us something to praise you for, and that is the salvation, the deliverance, the rescue we have in Jesus Christ. And so now and always, we desire to give you all the glory through Christ our Lord. Amen. You're listening to Every Last Word with Bible teacher Dr. Philip Ryken a listener-supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview, drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by. We seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Rev. Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible, featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-488. 1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at AllianceNet.org. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. 
Thank you again for your continued support of this ministry.